Welcome to No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg. I am the host of No Challenges Remaining and the author of the new book coming out on January 9th, Tuesday, this week, which is called Naomi Osaka, Her Journey to Finding Her Power and Her Voice. I hope everyone can get a copy. And we're doing something a little bit different on this episode. We're having dear friend of the show, our Middle East and North Africa correspondent, Reem Abuleil, with us again. Hello, Reem. Hello, Ben. And you are going to be the host from here on out in the episode, interviewing or talking with me about the book I wrote. So thank you for being up for helping for this. I appreciate it. And yeah, I'm glad you small handful of people who've read this book that hopefully a lot more people will be reading soon. I know. And this is uh, very exciting for me because I love the book. I just finished it a few days ago. Thank you. And uh, I'm very excited to talk to you about it. I have a lot of questions. And yeah, I mean, I kind of lived with you through the process of writing this. Yeah. I was so like, probably right after you, I was like the second most excited person that this was over. (laughs) I knew how how interesting of a process it's been. So um, tell me, how does it feel that it's a couple of days away from dropping? Yeah, it's exciting. Someone asked me if I was nervous about this part of it. And honestly, I'm really not. Maybe I should be, but I'm not. I was much, much more nerve wracking part of writing the book is actually writing the book and trying to finish it and trying to make it something that you can be content with and proud of and also just finished just the act of actually finishing and getting everything that needs to be in it in is already an ordeal and then trying to make it something that's actually good and readable and people will enjoy is almost as like a secondary concern at some point (laughs) as you're working on it just trying to get this big task done and yeah especially with with naomi and what a you know, it's probably what you're alluding to, like what a kind of moving target she was during the course of writing this book and how much her story was, was shifting and how much the ending of this book was unclear and the trajectory of her career was unclear. Uh, I thought there were a lot of challenges during the, you know, roughly two year window where I was actively writing this book. But I, I felt glad ever since, I guess, August when I was in Cincinnati, I stayed a few days after the term ended in a Best Western hotel in Cincinnati to put all the last uh, efforts into the book. Ever since then, I felt pretty, pretty good about it. So not nervous, but excited for people to see and excited for people to, to read. And like I said, in the, in the earlier part, like I'm always excited right now to get to talk to people who have read the book, because there's probably only I'm like a dozen or so people I know who've, who've read their early copies. And you're one of them. We haven't talked about it much yet. So I'm excited to talk today. Yeah, actually, this is going to be our first conversation about the book, which yeah. I like we're doing it here another thing i was thinking about just about the, the moving target that you were saying and and somehow everything fell into place because the book is dropping with her coming back to tennis which i think in a way uh, you couldn't plan for it to be this perfect but i feel yeah. like it's perfect timing and i hope you uh, people feel the same way absolutely yeah that's something we got lucky with a bit it wasn't complete blind luck but definitely so the book was originally i can say it was originally planning to come out people might remember this if they first heard it announced the book was originally set to come out in August 2023, like right before the U.S. Open. And August is kind of a traditional time for tennis books to come out in the U.S. especially. Like I remember like Sharapova's book came out in that window. Chris Clary's Federer book came out in that window. Billie Jean King's recent memoir, All In, all came out. And they came out the same week as, as Clary's book, actually. And so just like in the U.S. market with the U.S. Open, that's considered like the traditional window to do it. But with the baby news, mm-hmm. it just seemed like it was cutting it sort of too close to the birth because we'd have to have the book finalized before before the birth. And or when, you know, when the birth was expected, 
and also having NAMI off tour. And so NAMI said in her announcement of her pregnancy that she was aiming for Australia 2024 for her comeback. So we made the decision uh, fairly quickly after that announcement to move the, the date to January. And that's worked out on so many levels. I mean, just first on a book writing level, getting roughly four extra months to work on the book was a huge blessing and made it much better. That amount of time when I was really feeling very crunched for time was a, a huge godsend. And then, yeah, and then the timing of Naomi actually sticking to that provisional schedule, which was not at all a guarantee because, you know, so many athletes coming back from whether it's long-term injuries or pregnancy often have sort of a plan A that has to get adjusted. And so that Naomi was able to stick to her ambitious goal of coming back about uh, six months after having her her daughter and come back and look really good, honestly, too, in Brisbane, being ready to play a full schedule and looking fit and happy and healthy and everything. It's all, yeah, all worked out super, super well. And so she's one of the big, big stories naturally already of the 2024 season. So we don't have to sort of manufacture all of the interest in her, at least for this book, which, I mean, who knows if it had been August 2023 and she was on tour or even just had just had a kid and her process were a lot more hazy. It would feel like a weirder time to sort of put this book out into the world. Yeah, I'm glad it worked out. I want to go to the beginning and just, when did you decide that you wanted to write a book about Naomi? I first had the idea to write about Naomi. Actually, I was going through notes and texts and stuff during the reporting process on my own phone and saw that I first mentioned the idea uh, to someone on the day actually that Naomi had stopped play at the 2020 Cincinnati tournament that was held in New York during the bubble and the pandemic. Just because I've been so struck with Naomi during that summer already with how much she'd been speaking out on social media about Black Lives Matter issues and going to protests and just really finding her voice and finding this new cause in this way that was seemed like such a transformation from the, you know, incredibly shy teenager who you and I both met, you know, when she was still a teenager outside the top 100. That's one of the, one of the reasons I'm excited to talk to you about this, too, because you're one of the people who actually met Naomi before me uh, or talked to her before me in, in Singapore when she went Rising Stars there. And yeah, that really struck me that she was an interesting person. And then I started doing a bunch of sort of looking, even just preliminarily online and a lot of Google deep dives and excavations into her her family and her childhood and realized how much there also really wasn't known about that time and how much her story wasn't known. And I felt like she was this, such a hugely famous person. And that became even more so over the course of the following 12 months or so in her life after my initial idea, when she, you know, won her third and fourth Grand Slam titles she had her standoff with the press conference issue at the 2021 French Open. She was the cauldron lighter at the 2021 Tokyo Olympics. And all these things, she just reached this level of like super, super, super stardom that I felt was incredible, but also really left her life kind of under told and under examined. And there were just so many different layers to her story that, yeah, I was convinced that there, there could be a, a good book in there some way. wasn't sure at all what kind of form it would take, what kind of structure it would take, but definitely I thought her as a subject was going to be compelling. And then thankfully, which is not always the case, but thankfully people in the publishing world agreed. So that's not a given. So that was a, those two things had to, had to align. And the more you were digging deep, what were some of the things that you felt like, oh, okay, this is really something that I need to focus on or there, or this is something that you know, like you probably have a, a general idea mm -hmm. of maybe what it was going to be like. And then probably the more you were digging in, the more it kind of took a different, they took on a different structure. And I'm curious, what was the, some of the things that you felt, okay, this is really her story. Like what, even in the title, like what, what made you decide that that is the title? Mm. Yeah. So I think the, 
the the subtitle, you know, her finding her power in her voice. A lot of that comes from that 2020 marveling and revelation at her finding her voice and, you know, stopping play at the Cincinnati tournament and being the one to stand up as a disruptive activist in tennis, which we have just not seen much of at all in the sport in our time coming. It's where we know how distraction averse, how activism averse, politically averse, all these sorts of things tennis players generally are. And often in stark comparison to other players, often in team sports, who are much more outspoken in these in those situations. And so Naomi, and, and that it was Naomi who was the one who made the stand. Again, just knowing her personality, I was really struck by. And also just finding her power as a tennis player as well. And then, you know, obviously becoming a four-time Grand Slam champion. She still won more Grand Slam titles than anyone born in the 90s, which is interesting little stat that I've realized recently. She's obviously not part of the big three or Serena, Venus generation, but she still is kind of the standard bearer and what's been kind of a, an interesting transitional time in the tour uh, since then. Iga, who's born in the 2000s, also has four titles now, but Naomi still has the solo lead in the, uh, kids born in the 90s. Which I thought was interesting. Yeah, so so the tennis is there and also just, you know, in terms of that power, so much of it during her career, as people who've watched her for a long time will know, was about taking the raw power and strength and harnessing it into something that was actually usable because so often, you know, early in her career it could be really scattershot and really hit or miss and making a lot of errors and trying to refine that and trying to control the sort of raw thing you have within yourself is also a part of her her story. And then I guess in terms of other things that I found that I wanted to put in the book, maybe focus more on her early life in terms of things I found early. You know, one of the first things I found was like public records about the family's um, eviction from their apartment in 2014, which happened right on the eve of Naomi making her WTA debut in Stanford at the WTA tournament there. And just sort of seeing those two moments align and have, and realizing just how desperate the financial state stakes had been in her family and her childhood as they were chasing chasing this tennis dream and really going all in on this very risky bet and seeing how that motivated Naomi was something I was really struck by early. Um, and then on a smaller sort of somewhat incongruous note, one of the other things I found fairly early was Naomi's father's filmmaking. And he had three movies he made and I got the DVD for the one that Naomi acted in and watched it and just trying to make that other pursuit, other passion, other dream of of their fathers align with this concurrent tennis dream he had was an interesting sort of puzzle thematically to try to work out. And it's not a big part of the book in the end. It's only a couple pages on the movie, but it still was just something I found very early that definitely piqued my curiosity. What I also found very interesting was the stuff from her mother's book, mm -hmm. which I didn't even know existed. But also just following up on what you just said about how it was desperate times and, and we've seen Naomi speak so much about how she's always doing this for her family. And, and the first thing she when, when she was on the, uh, the, I think it was the interview with Ellen mm -hmm. and she said the first thing she wanted to buy was a TV for her parents. Like mm -hmm. that's how, that's how she's always spoken. And with the stuff you, you mentioned in the book from her mom's book, it, you start to really understand more also from the background, what they went through in detail, how much her mom had to work their move from Japan uh, to New York. Uh, she was working multiple jobs, all this stuff. When did you read, actually, Naomi's mom's book, and how important was that for you to, to put everything together? Yeah, that was something that came out in, I think, probably around April or May of 2022, her book came out. I think she wrote it sort of, sort of as a pandemic project when she was home during the pandemic. 
And actually, our friend Aki got me a copy from Japan and brought it uh, to Europe when I was there covering the clay tournaments. I think I was in Rome when I got the copy of the book and I read it uh, maybe like a month later, which was tedious because it was a lot of translation, a lot of asking for translation help and using a lot of Google Translate and confirming stuff. And Google Translate for Japanese is good and pretty amazing, actually, like the Google Lens, but it's not perfect. So having to do a lot of double checking and clarifying things with Aki and other people along the way. So I appreciate their help. Anyone who asked for Japanese translation confirmation at any point in this. Yeah, but it was, it was this thing I didn't always didn't know was in the works and it wound up being a really helpful for sure to lens and understanding Tamaki and her life and her motivations. And the subtitle of her book, her book is called through the tunnel and the subtitle has a few different translations I've seen from Japanese to English, but one of the words that's often used in the subtitle is reckless. It's like it's like about like chasing a reckless dream or something is, is one of the subtitles for for the book. And I thought it was a really interesting word to use to describe yourself. I mean, very few people describe themselves as reckless or their own lives as reckless. But she has this way of of making it clear in the book that how high risk everything that the family did was. They really made these choices and these risky, potentially reckless, if you want to call it that decisions to uproot their lives to, to chase tennis and to sacrifice a lot in terms of financial security, in, in terms of stability, in order to put their two daughters on this path towards tennis. And just seeing, yeah, that sort of unsure footing that they had from the jump uh, as a family and as parents, and that has really persisted, uh, you know, for years, arguably ever since in some ways. But it, it's been a footing they, they chose. They chose this this life for themselves, this tennis life. They could have had a much simpler lives, but they made this choice to dive into tennis. And yeah, just seeing the ramifications of making that kind of extreme choice as parents, I think it's one of the interesting things that kind of reverberates through this book, especially the early parts, because Naomi and Mari have talked at different times about, you know, one of the early questions that she gets a lot or basic questions is, how did you start playing tennis? And her answer Naomi has varied at times of how much she says it was solely her, her father's idea or how much she says it was something that she enjoyed also. And sort of it depends on their their mood to their reflectiveness at any given point, both her and Mari, how they how they answer those sort of questions about family motivation. And it's interesting as well because what you say with her mom using the word reckless, in a way, Naomi also swings big, you know, like mm -hmm. as soon as she started experiencing success. She didn't go for average stuff like the projects she went for the the even just the starting evolve it, it she is very very ambitious and when i read the book i was like okay that that comes from the parents uh, it's very obvious that it comes from the parents uh, so i enjoyed that yeah and just and even just sort of betting on yourself too i think it's something that Naomi's done a lot of there's one like small detail in the book about like when she won the Australian Open, like she didn't actually have an active clothing contract because her team and, and her family with it had agreed to sort of wait uh, to see how she'd do at the Australian Open before signing her next clothing deal. And she wound up winning that 2019 Australian Open and hitting number one, which I'm sure made the next deal that she got from Nike way more lucrative. You know, so being willing to sort of bet on yourself and, and gamble is something that's continued even through her, her pro career and her, her business life. Yeah, that was super interesting. One thing also you can tell from this book is that you, the, the amount of research and the amount of people you actually spoke to is ridiculous <laughs> for this book. I know that it's something, I, I would assume that that's normal for anyone writing 
book, but I genuinely feel this is not normal level. Of, <laughs> you did a great job with really speaking to everyone who could you could possibly think of. Naomi's very early agent actually was a very interesting was very interesting to me. Yeah. What was his name? Daniel Balog, yeah. Yeah. That was super interesting. And also, I know you went to Florida and actually tracked down some of her early coaches. Can you tell me a little bit about that whole journey and what you learned from that? Yeah, for sure. That was one of the first trips I took for this book was going to... I went there on a couple different occasions, actually, months later when I was covering the Miami tournament back to talk to one more coach. But yeah, I went down to Broward County, Florida, and I made a bit to Palm Beach, which is basically the two counties which are north of Miami-Dade County in sort of the southeastern corner of Florida, which is a huge population center and really is one of the huge centers for tennis. And, you know, there are some big name academies there that are, are more famous, like the Everett Academy is there. The Burke Macy Academy is there, which, you know, Lloyd Williams sisters trained and several other top players like Andy Roddick trained at Rick Macy's. And there's a couple other big academies too on the West Gulf Coast of Florida, like IMG, most famously in Bradenton, and Saddlebrook is a big one near Tampa. But a lot of the coaches who the, the Osaka's worked with, who I was talking to, were these coaches who have these really kind of like pop-up operations in public parks where they just have themselves and maybe an assistant coach and a few hoppers and balls and a bunch of kids who are often still devoting huge parts of their lives and their childhoods to tennis, but are are not, you know, in the sort of moneyed clear conveyor belt towards success uh, that we think of so much when we think of Florida academies. I think I refer to them in the book as sort of like a, a gleaner class of, of coaches who kind of pick up some of the the leftovers from the big academies or some of the ones that the big academies just don't see as a as the right fit when they're trying to, to harvest the biggest talents. And now we bounce around between several of those, those coaches. And all of them at that point, when I talked to them roughly 10 years later, were still working uh, at their academies. I talked to most of them, you know, basically between sessions on their course at these various public parks. And one of them actually just recently passed away, one of the ones who Naomi worked with early on, a guy named Bill Adams. So I sad to see that. Uh, he passed away a few months ago. But yeah, there, there's this really interesting scene down there. And I think as tennis reporters also, I mean, you know this, we spend so much time at tournaments seeing players almost all in this competition mode and largely when they're pretty fully formed professionals, give or take, you know, whatever age they are in their pro-life, but seeing seeing these kids, and and they are kids, you know, from as young as like seven, eight years old, I was seeing kids out there at these various places, and even teenagers who are on the verge of college or, or turning pro, whatever it may be, seeing them devoting their lives to it on these really kind of backwater public courts was just an interesting way to look at the sport and see something just much earlier in the development of the of the process than we ever see. So. And and those yeah those those coaches all had very clear memories of Naomi and her family even the ones who worked with her for you know less than a year she left an impression and like a lot of you know teachers would have impressions of their students I think in in these settings where it's only you know most of the time a lot of these you know public courts kind of places have certainly less than let's say ten kids attending at a given time uh, the the quote unquote academy the the person is running so. It can be a very personal experience. And yeah, just trying to project and, and see dreams. And obviously, and a lot of them also did not have high hopes for Naomi was the other thing I should mention too. A lot of them, especially the very early ones, were saying that Naomi did not show a lot of promise or or passion that they saw early on as a, as a kid. She was really not thought of as a, as a great prospect. And Mari, actually her older sister, was the one who they thought was the more likely you know, viable pro 
of the family. So hearing that and hearing how that that shifted within the family was also interesting. Yeah, and you mentioned the the whole like the, evic the, the eviction notice was like the same day or a couple of days before she made her WTA debut. There were quite a few moments in the book that I felt were like big moments. Some of them are the predictable ones, which is like obviously the 2018 final against Serena uh, mm -hmm. at the US Open. When you know how that is obviously something that was huge and kind of it was one of those probably the first moment for Naomi where it was a huge crossover with pop culture. Definitely. People who knew nothing about tennis were, were asking about what what happened in that final with Serena. So how, how did you approach that part? Because I feel like it's such a huge thing that you know you have to treat in a certain way. So how, how, what, what was your approach to that part? Yeah, I think that that moment and also the French Open standoff too, I'll say as well, were the two like the hardest parts for sort of editing, right? Because there was so much. There were so many people talking about those moments and the characters in them from such a broad spectrum of the culture, you know, because we've seen this, those are both, I think, parallel moments in, different, in very different ways. But what they both are is, is kind of what is amusing to me as a tennis nerd and a tennis reporter. Like they're these relatively obscure rule violations that somehow become enormous cultural flashpoints. Like you have, you know, hosts on The View talking about when it's fair or not fair to give a coaching violation. You know, how much do coaches really coach and get away with it? These kind of like very inside tennis talking points that become cultural referendums and lightning rods unexpectedly. And we've seen that a bunch in tennis in the last few years. We've seen that certainly I think Serena is, is a huge reason for that. I think Serena had this had this cross section of of being this culturally adored public figure and also being someone who is still actively competing and winning and losing in in the structures of tennis and how those sorts of projections of her or interpretations of her as a cultural icon, uh, you know, brushed up against the tennis establishment or rules at various points, most, most loudly in this 2018 US Open final, it has made for some really interesting sparks. And it's interesting with re writing this from a Naomi perspective is that Naomi really was not one of the major players, honestly, in any of that controversy of the 2018 US Open final. You know, she's, when you think of the 2018 US Open women's mm -hmm. final, people still will think about Serena and Carlos Ramos first and then maybe even Patrick Moore talk yeah. you know giving the coaching that that was the first domino that really started everything collapsing our first card from the house of cards whatever you want to call it and Naomi was there and she did play a factor and it was relevant that she was beating Serena in this match I think was a clear factor in why everything got as emotional as it did in that second set but yeah but it was something that was really largely more about Serena and Naomi there was just this huge inferno of, of heat from that moment, from that, ex that explosive moment. And I think it kind of launched Naomi, who just happened to be there kind of on the launching pad, into this much bigger orbit of celebrity and notoriety than she ever would have gotten just from winning the U.S. Open final. You know, if she'd beaten the other U.S. Open finalist, Sevastova, let's say, if Sevastova had beaten Serena in the, in the semis and Naomi beat her in the final, Naomi wouldn't have been anywhere near as big a, a cultural icon, certainly not in America. But the, the way that she that she beat Serena in a Grand Slam final and that it was Serena's most talked about Grand Slam final ever really propelled Naomi in this way that was really unprecedented. And I mean, you saw that too. I know you were with Naomi uh, and and talked to her and to her coach, then Sasha Bai in, like in China, you know, a couple of weeks after that. And so I know you saw the sort of, I'm just, if I can ask you a question, like what you remember from seeing sort of aftermath of that compared to other, you know, recent Grand Slam champs you've encountered, like what it was like for Naomi in the aftermath of that. 
So by the time Naomi got to Beijing, she had started a little bit saying, like saying a little bit more about the final because like the the press stuff that she had done, like the talk shows and things like that, she always just like stuck to, I didn't really pay attention to what was happening because I really didn't, couldn't hear anything and I didn't know what was going on. And she was just sticking to that and not really saying about how she felt. She wasn't talking too much about that. And in her press conference in Beijing, that was the first time when she said she, I remember, I think Carol Bouchard was there. Mm -hmm. And I think it was an answer to Carol's question in press when she told her, Naomi just looked at Carol and she was like, have you ever had green tea ice cream? Yes. <laughs> and Carol, who loves green tea ice cream, it was like, yes, I, I really, I have, yes. <laughs> Tell me <laughs> why. And she, she was like, you know that bittersweet kind of feeling? That's how I felt about the final. And that was kind of the, the most revealing, revealing thing she had said since yeah. she had won about the experience. And I'm like, you literally will never hear someone who won their first Grand Slam say that it was bittersweet. Right. You know what I mean? Like, I've never heard that. It's not usually a complex emotion in that way at all, no. Exactly. And for her, it was for so many different reasons. Even a part of it is like, I, I beat my idol. Like, even beyond yes. everything that happened, all the obvious stuff. In her mind, she worships Serena. She still worships Serena. That was one of the things that I was most struck by in, in reporting and trying to restructure this was how much of Naomi's emotion had to do with beating Serena. That's something I really only, I think, yeah. appreciated with a bit of distance and perspective from it. I think it was so obvious and easy for people to see the crowd booing and Naomi crying and thinking that she was booing, that she was crying because the crowd was booing and it was this whole negative thing. And that's definitely was part of it. That's not irrelevant to what happened. But so much of it also was just her really broken up to, you know, from the sort of zero sum nature of, of tennis that for in order for her to achieve her dream, she had to stop her, her idol, this woman who was hugely formative in her, her tennis in her life, uh, in Serena from, from getting to 24. And she knew how much Serena wanted 24. And so that was definitely something in terms of new things. I, I felt like I learned about the, that very talked about 2018 US Open final. I felt like that was one thing that I get a greater appreciation of from re-examining and writing it was, yeah, how much the just beating Serena part of the equation was tough for Naomi. And when I was, uh, this is a bit of a segue, but when I was watching Breakpoint, the Netflix documentary, and I was watching the Isla Tomlianovic episode mm -hmm. when Isla beat Serena in Serena's very last match at the US Open, Isla, as soon as she walked off court and went to her dad, she said, like, I'm kind of sad yeah. because she loves Serena. And she was like, I'm kind of sad I just beat Serena. And that reminded me of, yeah, that's kind of how probably in different ways, because obviously that was Serena's very last match. But uh, but only Serena can have that effect on her opponents, you know, where they're kind of sad <laughs> when they beat you, <laughs> if they really idolized you that much. Another thing I remember with Naomi, obviously it was her first slam. And it's just really funny looking back at, at that Beijing tournament, because I remember I was sitting in the front row of her presser. We were talking about... Somehow we, we, we started talking about rising stars and then she was like, the only thing I remember about rising stars was Ons. And the reason she was yeah. saying that is because she's talking to me and obviously knows I know Ons well. So she immediately like pointed at me and was like, Ons. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> that conversation was funny. But then I was I was texting her agent at the time and I was like, kind of like, hey, like, can I get a few minutes with her one on one? And he said yes, while I was in the press conference. And that seems like a lifetime ago because there's yeah. no way in hell now <laughs> you can be sitting in a press conference in front of Naomi and text her agent and get a yes for an interview like it's probably yeah. there are zero chance of anyone doing that and that was still it was she was still so fresh you know even after she just won a slam but everything was so and I think with them also they kind of knew 
that she still wasn't very comfortable talking to people who she hadn't seen many times before. Obviously, Courtney is the one she's most comfortable with, but mm -hmm. also she had seen me in Singapore. She had that whole year, like I was with her in Dubai, at Indian Wells, all of that. So I think that's how I got to speak with her. And yeah, yeah. I that was not the glow of someone who won a slam. She was still kind of wrapping her head around what, what had happened. So moving on from that, another big part was, as you said, the kind of standoff with the slams and mm -hmm. the press conference format and all that. What did you learn when you were digging into all that? I think I gained a greater appreciation for how much effort went on behind the scenes. And some of this is, is some in the a lot of it's in the book, but just sort of how much the Grand Slams were working to try to to try to avoid confrontation with Naomi a bit. They were really trying every avenue they possibly could in terms of reaching out through Wim Fassett, who was her coach at the time, her agent, all sorts of people trying all sorts of approaches to go through anyone they thought they could get to to get to Naomi, and that Naomi was was very shut off, and even within her team too. Like she wasn't talking to her her coach to Wim. Wim was like in the dark. He was with her in Paris. He was the main person with her in Paris, and she was just really isolated herself and really built up this wall from that. So that was one thing I learned. Then also, also just how much the grand slams sort of, because of, I think some of their frustration at that stonewalling, they kind of, that all of the sort of executives of these grand slam nations or grand slam, you know, associations were involved in making this, this response that wound up being very harsh. And the other thing, a couple of, there's several other things, other factors too, that I thought of in there. I mean, like, I think that, she had this personality where she was very impressionable, maybe it's the word for it, or something where she could just be, because she was so open and vulnerable in press conferences, that she could really be derailed or, or swayed in a way that's, I don't think it's totally typical, uh, by a, a comment that was made to her in press, or she could really feel things on a very deep level. And she didn't have a guard up and she wasn't hiding behind cliches in press, even as a world superstar, that was not just some, a part of her personality that she had. So, you know, there's this moment people look back on even before, but it's in the book as well, where she gets asked in Miami about having the chance to overtake Barty for the number one ranking if she does very well at Miami, or there's some ranking scenario where she could she could surpass Barty. Mm -hmm. And she says that, like, after she got asked that question, she just couldn't stop thinking about it. And her mind was sort of racing, and that made her want to, she said that was a factor in her her losing her next match, which broke a very long winning streak. She lost to Sakari after that. And yeah, just sort of being able to piece that together and understanding that she does because of the things, all the things that made her amazing in press conferences for her, for us as reporters, you know, which was because she's so, so honest and so revealing. And, you know, multiple coaches of hers, both Sasha Bayan and Wimpasset have said they, you know, read or watch her press conferences now they learned to do that because she was often more revealing in press conferences than she was in one-on-one -on -one conversations with her own team, which I don't think any other player is that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that what, all the things that made her a really compelling interviewee also made her yeah more vulnerable uh, to this. And and also the fact that, and this is things Naomi said more recently, uh, largely, but the, the way that pandemic protocols also changed things for her in that you know the remote mm -hmm. nature of the press conferences was also something that she found very dehumanizing and more stressful and also the fact that any outlet could get to uh in front of her with a question from anywhere in the world remotely really increased the number of people in front of her at any given at every press conference she held and also the types of different reporters in terms of 
what their motives were and if they were just if they knew suddenly that Naomi on the heels of, you know, the Black Lives Matter stuff and the all the record endorsement news with someone who would reliably generate clicks and stuff, it got sort of a different type of question being asked her a lot of times and those sorts of things paired to make her just increasingly uncomfortable. And I do think that she and her team, but obviously mostly her because it was her decision to post the statement, miscalculated how much blowback there would be from this statement. I do think in some level she thought she was stepping back from this and receding uh, by making the statement to remove herself from press conferences, but ultimately wound up, you know, really shoving herself into this fray in this international spotlight that became so huge. And again, this cultural flashpoint based on this relatively obscure rules violation about mandatory press conferences that suddenly every single person in world media had to have a strong opinion on. Seeing that all unfold again was was remarkable. Yeah. One thing I, I found, in, first of all, one thing I noticed when you said the how the COVID rules for press conferences changes change things. It just reminded me of just how insular tennis can be. As mm-hmm. much as it's global and we go all over the world, the beat writers who cover tennis are quite a small group. And it's becoming a smaller and smaller group because no one can afford to travel. So I wonder now when when there's less familiar faces for Naomi and there's gonna be probably more random people showing up to pressers, how that can change in general. Because there is a big difference, I feel, between yeah. pre-COVID and post-COVID in press centers. I mean, even you and I now don't meet up that much in press uh, in yeah. press rooms at tournaments. Our travel schedules have become different. Everything's become different. This is something I was thinking about, actually, as you were talking just before about, you know, you being around her after the US Open and Courtney being around her. And obviously, I was around her, too, a lot in those early years in Tumani. Like, in terms of why I wanted to write the book, too, I think that... That group of us like had this sort of very unique lens and access to this pre-superstardom Naomi that allows for a sort of understanding of her that I'm not sure people or reporters are ever going to get again in a lot of ways. Like you said, the way you could yeah. sort of casually set up a one-on-one interview with her as sort of an impulse during a press conference texting her her agent across the room, that's not going to happen again. Everything is is so... Is so much more structured and also much more controlled by her. Naomi's part of this this movement in in sports where so many athletes are in a celebrity culture more largely too, but definitely it's part of it in sports where Naomi has her own production company now and is probably gonna make a documentary about herself at some point, you know, in the near future, I would imagine. And will mm-hmm. will do actually I don't know anything details on that, but that's the kind of thing that she's setting out to do. She has a production company and and yeah, that so many athletes are taking more care about their own stuff. So it really I think to do this book the way I, from sort of a tennis insider way, there were probably only a small handful of people. And yeah, you mentioned yourself and Courtney and I, the three of us, probably most of all, and then maybe Tumani is a fourth or an Aki from Japan is a fifth who could sort of do this book from a ground up tennis perspective. It really was not, that's not a book that someone could come along in, in five years and, and do the same way that I think I was able to do in this book. So unless something changes dramatically in Naomi or in the media landscape somehow, but yeah, I think that it was definitely a, a moment where they were sort of seeing, and that's what a lot of this book is, is seeing this this shy, very introverted by her own emissions person become this superstar and trying to reconcile those two forces in her, those two realities in her life. And they often, it's not, often not easy, you know, to want to be shy, but also want to be outspoken, to want to be famous, but also want to have privacy, to want to have sponsors, but also not pressure. You know, there's these sorts of things that Naomi 
has this push and pull at various points in her personality and her life that we sometimes see the the way that can cause fraying during her story. Yeah, yeah. It, it, I always feel like it narrows down is that she's very ambitious. Yeah. Uh, so her ambition is sometimes it, it doesn't always go with how maybe she feels on the inside or she feels about certain byproducts of the fame that will come with that ambition, all of that. So it's it is very interesting. Like you said, it is a push and pull. Another thing also that I found interesting is we don't see that with a lot of players. Most players are so attached to their teams and their coaches. Mm -hmm. It would seem impossible for them to go a week without talking to either their agent or their coach or both. But I noticed with uh, in the book, there were times when Naomi would just disappear completely and not talk to her team. Like, yeah. um, can't remember now exactly because I read the book over quite a long time. <laughs> but uh, you would know, like, there was a yeah, period yeah. where, like, just... Yeah. yeah. Tell, can, me, tell can, me about that I because can, I, that, that I found quite interesting. <laughs> definitely. Now, one of the clearest examples is she's in her first month or first tournament or first month of competition working with Winfacet, who's her new coach. And she goes to the 2020 Australian Open. And she, they, well, they go to Brisbane and she makes semi She plays well there, played Pliskova also like this month. She did. Great match. She loses. It's all fine. Goes to Melbourne and loses to Coco Golf, which is a big upset in the third round after having beaten Coco in the U.S. Open previous to that. And Naomi basically gets on a plane and leaves Australia. Not an easy thing to do. Not a, not a, not a quick thing to do to book a flight and leave the continent without talking to anyone on her team. Like she basically just like ghosts and leaves and flies to another continent, leaving everyone who's there with her who made this trip with her, who's her whole team and her employees kind of in the dark, in the lurch in Australia. And... And that was something that Wimp said was that obviously an early hurdle and something that they met up in, in in Spain a few weeks later when she was playing Fed Cup there. And that was something that was, yeah. you know, they, they had to resolve and, and sort of reestablish trust after that. But it happened, it did happen a few times. And now we missed this where she, you know, like after she said she was going to stop playing for a bit at the, at the 2021 US Open when she, you know, tearfully was at the podium saying she didn't know she was going to play her next match. Also then she went, I think that time it was like, couple months without talking to her team without giving them any sense of of what her future might be and that's a little different because she's obviously very publicly uncertain in that moment so maybe that's a bit more understandable but yeah there are times certainly and you know could happen again i don't know her how much her personality has changed or she really does go go dark and she does retreat from the sport and from her team and yeah that's definitely something that's not not something we hear about much or sometimes you know certainly when it happens for some players after a big loss it's usually they might go away for one night or you know a few hours even like i remember this is not really related but i remember one time venus lost in cincinnati and just like disappeared from the site and i remember even like serena couldn't find her serena's like has anyone seen venus <laughs> she couldn't find her after she lost uh i think it was to Vesnina some year and people can look up what year that was in cincinnati anyway mm -hmm. yeah but naomi definitely has this way of of being i don't want to say difficult but being but being yeah unpredictable to work with and and very impulsive at a lot of times too. That, that is, yeah, she's not predictable as a, as, a, as a player, but at the same time, Wimpeset obviously, you said you didn't have a, a epilogue when we were talking before this, Wimpeset excited to come back to Naomi and still believes in, in her potential. And, and despite all those sort of you know challenges, I think for him, certainly the, the promise and the, the good parts outweigh the frustrations that would be natural for a lot of people to have in that kind of employment situation. I actually think that Wimpeset is one of the best people to, to work with that kind of dynamic. 
Mm. Because I remember very well when he was, I once was talking to him. I think he was already coaching Naomi, but for some reason we were talking about his time coaching Vika. Mm -hmm. And we were talking in general about the dynamic between a coach and a player. Sometimes they're like family and they're so close and they eat all their meals together and do all this stuff together. Whereas he was saying when he was coaching Vika, it was a business arrangement. And when the work was done, they all lived, but each went their, you know, parted ways. They each mm -hmm. did their own thing. Even at the time, Vika wasn't traveling with her son. So it's not like, okay, I'm going to go be with my son and you leave. But it was just that kind of dynamic. And he said that he, he was very comfortable in that dynamic. I remember well that he was saying not many players do that. Yeah. But he enjoyed that. Uh, so I guess having that divide maybe works with someone like him. I also see it from a different perspective when you were talking about like about Naomi being unpredictable. I find that interesting because in a way it shows that she can be independent. So many of those players are so dependent on their teams. Mm -hmm. But in a way, Naomi, Naomi going off and wanting to be just with her family or whatever and think on her own and that kind of stuff, it kind of gives me the impression, maybe I'm wrong, but it gives me the impression that she is able to go and make these decisions by herself and she wants to own whatever decision she's going to make next. And it's not all yeah. super dependent on what people around her or her team are telling her, which is interesting because we don't yeah. see that a lot of times. Yeah, there's a certain rebelliousness. And to use that word we applied that her mother used for herself earlier, that sort of almost recklessness at times that she can be at once this big operation, but at the same time be very impulsive and follow her heart on lots of different things. And, and make, you know, which obviously is a, a po more positive way to say it, but obviously it can be tumultuous at times too. And like the French Open statement, for sure, maybe is an example of that where, you know, it sort of throws her, herself and her, her career and everything into chaos fairly abruptly. There's a part of that for sure in her. And, and Wimpicet, you mentioned too, Wimpicet's a big part of the book. And he was someone who's great to talk to, who's very open. And I think he makes his parts of the book you know, the sections, years where he's with Naomi a lot better from having him being open and for interviews and stuff during the book. Um, a lot of which were mm -hmm. when he had to stop working with Naomi. And then obviously he's come back with her more recently. And I talked to him about in the epilogue, uh, was, would not have been the version you saw, but about his, about his decision to come back to Naomi and why he, he left to Jung Wen and came back to Naomi and that sort of story, which I know was a, a minor tennis scandal last fall. And mm -hmm. yeah. And, and also just in terms of coaching attachments, it's also, the other big coaching relationship in the book in terms of her pro career was with uh, Sasha Bayan and sort of seeing this very mm -hmm. different way that you talk about sort of detachment or, you know, having your life yeah. in separate columns. And Sasha is not like that. Sasha is very... That was completely the opposite. Yeah. yeah, Sasha Sasha's all in. He's very involved. And it was from the time he's working with Serena. It's maybe Serena started him on that a bit. I mean, Serena had Sasha living at her house, you know, with her full time mm -hmm. in... Florida and California and was, you know, accompanying her to red carpet events and just sort of always being around her as sort of a assistant slash bodyguard slash everything. And just this very, you know, they both described it as being like a brother sister relationship at various points. And that can get messy, obviously, when you're combining that with, yeah. with work and with, and with Serena that talked about in the book, you know, Serena is a big character in the book had this, you know, thing where she hired Patrick Mortoglu after working with Sasha for years before that already. And so it came more of a struggle for Sasha because Patrick just became the boss and Sasha not knowing yeah. where he fit into the team and, and that leading to him eventually leaving uh, Serena and, and finding other other work. But yeah, but Sasha said that he, I think with Naomi, he said he sent, sent something the first year they were together. I think he said he spent something along the lines of like, 
I, the numbers in the book, I think, but it's something along the lines of like 350 something days of the year with Naomi that first year they were together. Like he saw mm-hmm. her at least that many days, which is so much. That's more than you see almost anyone in your life in, in any normal life even. And unless it's, you know, a spouse or a child or someone who you're really actively living with and taking care of and not going on separate trips anywhere. And, but for that to be sort of an employer employee relationship is, is really beyond the norm. And it got great results for Naomi, but I think also led to things being more emotionally charged, emotionally messy when things did start to go wrong for yeah. them. Yeah. Another big moment, obviously, for Naomi was the one when, which you said gave you the idea to actually write the book is mm-hmm. when she stopped play at the US Open. So um, how did you tackle that part? I think there's so many so many perspectives to that day because you you looked at it. From, I liked how you looked at it because one of the more interesting parts for me was how Naomi's act, activism was received in Japan. Mm. I really liked that part. I, I really liked the parts that you included on that and and how being mixed race in Japan, how she's changing perceptions of that and and how people in Japan started learning more about the stories of the victims of those gun shootings and stuff. Uh, so yeah. that was really interesting for me. But also, you can tell me more about that. But like, you you showed how the men felt when when they stopped play because it was at a combined event. It was technically the Cincinnati tournament, but in the U.S. Open bubble. Yeah. And she she didn't just stop play for the WTA. She stopped play for both. Uh, and I think. Did I say you, I think you spoke to Roberto Bautista Agut on that? Or? I did. I did talk to Bautista Agut, yes. You said this early on when we were in in the show, but in terms of the number of people I talked to, I talked to, honestly, like twice as many people as are in this book. Like, almost half of them I didn't wind up using or I had to cut for various reasons for space and length and whatever else. So I talked to so many people. And so, yes, I did an interview for the book with Roberto Bautista Agut, which people would not think is a relevant person to an AMI Osaka book, but he was one of the semifinalists on the men's side at the Cincinnati tournament who had the tournament delayed mm-hmm. by a day. And and he was not happy about it. He basically, I talked to him, I remember at Indian Wells, uh, I guess in 2022 about it, and he was just not happy. He would just said like, yeah, that was ridiculous that they would stop this for a women's thing. Why would we have, why do we have to go along with this? And a lot of that also reflects, honestly, a lot of the European sentiment generally towards the stoppage. A lot of the European players, both men and women mm-hmm. who were in this tournament, didn't appreciate or didn't understand and, and you know, they're entitled to their opinions on this. They didn't think it was right for sort of a social issue in the U.S. to disrupt their mm-hmm. competition. And and they and they just couldn't process that. And that goes to, in the book, I talk about both Djokovic and Azarenka, who were both in in the tournament. Both were both made similar comments to administrators at the tournament, at the, or USDA people or tour people, whoever it was at the time, saying, you would not stop the uh, a tournament because of something happening in our home country if there was some tragedy or disaster or whatever happening in Serbia or Belarus for their own respective countries. Like this would not stop a tennis tournament. So why does it get to do that here? Like they, they did not uh, really appreciate that. And, and that was a fairly common European player sentiment during that time, even for players, because a lot of European players weren't at the US Open too. A lot of them did skip it that year, a lot of the top European players. And uh, they, they were also, I talked to a few of them who were not in the book, but who were just sort of saying, yeah, I didn't, I didn't get that. I didn't, didn't really understand that. And it was obviously unprecedented and hasn't happened again since. So it's a really one-of-a-kind moment in tennis history. As it happened, Naomi's opponent, who was the most crucial person for sort of, you know, someone who could have disapproved or whatever it may be of this moment, uh, Lisa Merton, mm-hmm. so I talked to about it. She was one of the most sort of understanding and accommodating and generous, honestly, people about it because Naomi had essentially, as it played out that day, had indicated her desire to 
not player to implicitly mm-hmm. withdraw. And then sort of the tournament made accommodations to delay play for a day that kept Naomi in the tournament. So, you know, Mertens for her, that would have meant some, something along the lines of roughly, I, I checked the book, but something along the lines of like a hundred thousand extra dollars in prize money for going to the final from the semifinal and like 200 ranking points, right. That suddenly that she thinks she has when Naomi's pulling out, but then the tournament keeps Naomi in by delaying play. And Mertens would have been understandable, I guess, to sort of raise a, a fuss about that and say, hey, why are you bending the rules or changing the schedule to accommodate this this star in Naomi? But Mertens was not that way. And Mertens, I think, really stands out as sort of an example of someone who was a, a real ally in that sense for Naomi in that moment. Because um, if, if she, honestly, if she'd been playing as ranker Kanta, I think it would have been very different. The two other players who left in that tournament. Yeah. So... Yeah, so that was an interesting moment for sure. And then, yeah, seeing how it reverberated around the world uh, to to Japan and how Japan and Japanese news were, you know, doing segments before the US Open final, you know, going through the stories of those seven names of the of the people who Naomi had on her masks during that US Open. And for people who were in Japan and not following the international news very closely and who are not, you know, maybe even just sports fans, you know, for, to be a tennis fan and to suddenly get this this education about the these stories moving the Black Lives Matter movement was was yeah revelatory to them in, in a way that definitely they would not have seen otherwise. So and for and for mixed race people in Japan, it was very meaningful too to have her her foreground in this because they are a very small community for sure. Japan is incredibly homogenous uh, statistically, and they are very overlooked and marginalized in a lot of ways in Japanese society. But Naomi has been at the front of a of a change in that that has come rapidly sometimes people think too rapidly and almost like an overcorrection at times but it's something yeah that was definitely a story for example in the when she got named as the the torch final mm-hmm. lighter at the opening ceremonies in tokyo even though she's obviously this hugely preeminent japanese athlete it was still seen as a as a statement that she was the one who um was the mm-hmm. ultimate symbol of japan holding this torch this sort of ultimate symbol of of hope and triumph and who you want to represent the country that they picked naomi and also they picked uh, Rui Hachimura uh, to be one of the flag bearers, too, who's another mixed-race Japanese uh, person. So a lot of their biggest roles in that Olympics were given to these uh, people of multiple ethnicities, which is just, yeah, a, a big departure for for Japanese culture. Yeah, and I saw you, 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 I don't know if you spoke to them directly or you quoted them, but there was a journalist, a Japanese yeah. journalist who you spoke to, who had yeah, been critical yeah. in general of, like, yeah. So that was interesting because, like, he said that even even though people saw, thought that it was just the Tokyo Olympics, you know, just acting woke and not really, you know, you know not really, as if it was just like a, you know, almost a publicity stunt. He said that no, it actually showed that the the the, the way they who they selected to light the torch and who they selected as a flag bearer, it, it showed that they're kind of like walking the walk and not not just talking the talk. Yeah. So I found that interesting. Yeah, talking to them and seeing and how it can be both they can both be like cynical about it, but also that it is still meaningful. You know, even if you can sort of, and this goes to a lot of sort of virtue signaling, if you want to call it that, in society, right? Like even if it comes from some sort of not totally one hundred percent organic motivation all the time, it can still have positive change, mm-hmm. which is interesting because because virtue signaling is is definitely a buzzword. I don't know if I use the term actually directly. Maybe I do in the book. I'm not sure, but. It is something people think about in this sort of age of yeah, early 2020s activism is a sentiment for sure. So tell me, how, like, what was the most challenging part of all, all, all this for you? 
I think there are two different things that come to mind. I mean, the first thing is obviously just the process of writing the book and and the er- very early stages of of doing it. I was not very productive, honestly, the first many months that I was doing this. Some of that was a bit out of my control and that I had planned to cover the tour in 2022. And I did, you know, travel everywhere Naomi was. And she wound up having this really kind of unremarkable season in almost all ways. You know, she pulled out a bunch of tournaments. She had some niggling injuries. She was not winning much with the exception of Miami, where she made the final. That was the one sort of big tournament that I spent with her, where she went all the way, that it was, you know, she was very elusive and sort of fading in and out of you. And and as 2022 ended, she was, and she, this week in Brisbane, she was open about saying she, for about a month or so, thought about stopping the sport because she wasn't feeling in love with it anymore. She just wasn't feeling like she was in it for the right reasons at all. And so having her career be so uncertain and so adrift as I was trying to really rein everything in and make everything structured in a book, that was a big challenge. And also, I will say on just a writer level, I I was surprised at how hard I found it to work and actually write for the book while I was on the road for traveling for the most part. Because obviously I've been a newspaper writer and magazine writer on the road my whole career. But something about writing the book and having this really big undertaking, I just didn't feel like I could focus the way I wanted to on, on the road at various press centers at even at like Airbnbs, whatever I was staying at along the tour in Europe. And I really only could get good work done when I was very much in my home sort of setup, you know, with my, my keyboard and my second monitor, which is a huge thing for me and processing my thoughts and trying to get all these pieces together for the book. So that was another sort of just work challenge that I wasn't expecting. And then, yeah, and then also length. I mean, this book is, is longer than I certainly expected it to be. And certainly than my publisher expected it to be uh, when they first assigned it. But I think I've, from what, I, from what people say, which I've been reassured by, that it's still a pretty quick read given how long it is page-wise. But that, yeah, but just trying to, to synthesize it and, and you know cut things was, was definitely a challenge because the book could have been a lot longer. There's a lot of other tangents I would have loved to go on because Naomi is such a, a, a complex story and so, touches so many different parts of the sport and of society and everything that... I, I had a lot more to say, even if I already said a lot or a lot more to sort of explain the show. So, and that's, again, sort of that, when I had those issues, that kind of made me at least more comfortable. And I was always pretty comfortable that I had picked the right subject for a book because I really do just find her genuinely fascinating and can talk about her at length and, and all the sort of different threads she touches. I'm sure you as well. Like we could go on so many different tangents from different things about how she relates to the culture of the sport. Yeah. Yeah. So, in what ways were did her team actually help you? Like, how much contact did you have with her team while working on this book? I actually mentioned the idea to Stuart, her agent, very early. Actually, during that Cincinnati 2020 tournament, I already like mentioned to him somewhat offhandedly. Like, I was already thinking like, no, it would be a good subject for a book from just seeing her this summer, and and he was was very responsive throughout, and and was was accommodating and was really helpful, especially like on fact checking. And stuff, uh, which was very important for me at the end. We had like, a fact check and call, and Naomi responded to like lots of different items and and confirmed almost all of them, and then like, clarified a couple of things and a couple of small tweaks to things I had on a lot of the various unreported details uh, from her early life, especially. And so that was a huge, huge help. And it's interesting. One of the things I've sort of gotten asked about a lot in this process is about you know they get asked this question like authorized or unauthorized biography, which are these two kind of columns that biographies get put into mm-hmm. but for me like i i feel like it's in terms of that level of of journalism whatever it's in keeping with all the other work i've done before 
really. You know, where like you talk to the subject and and their and their team and their support and people around them, the characters around them. But ultimately, it's kind of done independently and journalistically. It wasn't wasn't like I did anything. Naomi did not have um, like like the same way all my New York Times stories, whatever it were over the years. Like Naomi did not have editorial control or um, saying this was just not her idea to do this book. This was very much my idea. Yeah. So having that, it's, it's something I'm very comfortable with and also happy with that I was able to do the book yeah, independently and journalistically. And ultimately it's, it's yeah, not compromised in any way by that. And there are parts of it that she and her family, I'm sure would do not appreciate me bringing up probably, you know, that uh, the FTX uh, endorsement she had in 2022 that really imploded or, uh, you know, some, some of the disputes mm-hmm. she had with early coaches and who felt hard done by by her family with contracts that weren't honored and things like that. So there there are parts that, that she, I'm sure, wishes were not in there, or her family wishes were not in there. But I think ultimately, I, I hope I did a a job that, that they would appreciate and respect. And I've heard from one of them, I won't say who, but one of the people in their family already read it um, was overall pretty positive about it. So I was happy about that. That's good. Obviously, you're a journalist. You've done all your writing as a journalist, and then you're doing this. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you felt that you needed to like remind yourself to, I don't know, take your journalist hat off and think in a different way or approach mm-hmm. this in a different way for it to end up being a readable book? It's a good question. Just the scale of it, honestly, I felt like I was really unprepared for in a lot of ways. Just, you know, because normally I write pieces that are often less than 1% of the length of this book, you know? Mm-hmm. And so one of the one of the challenging things about this book as I were, as from the reporting process, and it's something I thought about if I was going to do a next book, I want to avoid this somehow. But I was kind of working on all parts of this book all the time. And that was really tricky. Like, I felt like, because I would I would do interviews, you know, with a coach from her early childhood, and then I would do an uh, interview with someone she played at Indian Wells in 2018. Then I did an interview with someone who her family you know was friends with and they lived in japan and then i would do an interview with some cultural writer who talked about her impact on this set of the other thing and you know those were all important parts of it they all went in very different categories and so i felt like i had these like all these different uh whatever analogy you want to use like spinning plates or like different you know pots on this on this enormous stove that i had to keep an eye on all of them at all times mm-hmm. and just sort of the multitasking nature of it because you just one person obviously her story is connected there'd be things that that she would say about her childhood that I would find, you know, someone would tell me or, or I would talk to Naomi or find an old quote of hers or something, whatever it might be, that would then explain something that happened later on in her life somehow. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I just felt like I was really doing this enormous tangle of things and and trying to get them all into a, a meaningful tapestry that was presentable and coherent um, was it was a big challenge. Yeah. Because even, you know, even just organizing, like I just wrote like a, a piece for an Australian magazine about Naomi, but it's, it was like, it was like 1400 words roughly, but mm-hmm. even like getting that organized and structured is still not totally easy, but trying to do it at, you know, literally like a hundred times that length is I found exponentially harder. So that was definitely a, a big challenge. And then sort of prose wise, I think a lot of my writing is relatively similar to what I've, what I've, the voice I've developed overall, but there were some times where I tried to be a bit more literary or stylistic, but hopefully not too much. No, it did sound like you, which I appreciated. I felt like, like it sounded like stuff you would write, which was cool. So what would you want people to take away from this book? 
I think I want people to have a deeper understanding of, of obviously this person and Naomi, but also just the sport in general. And one of the things that I most hope for the book is that people who, people who, not just people who consider themselves fans of Naomi already read it. I think there's a lot of, of stuff that's universal to tennis and sort of tennis ecosystem and the tennis system and the tennis journey and pathway that can be resonant for and, and enlightening for people who are any kind of tennis fan. And then also just people in general. And there's a lot of sort of universal themes in Naomi's life from, from family to, to mental health to dealing with success and failure and attention and ambition and multiculturalism and all sorts of different stuff. I mean, again, Naomi is so layered and is at the intersection of so many different things in the world that I think there's kind of something for everyone, I think, in some part of this book. And so, yeah, I really hope a lot of people, certainly if you listen to NCR, uh, give it give it a shot. And yeah, I, I just hope that people, I think I think people, and I've talked to a few people who, who are either don't really care about Naomi or who are tennis fans who don't actively don't like her, a couple, at least one or two of them who, who've already read parts of the book and they've been sort of, I've been heartened to hear that they have appreciated the book on, on various different levels, even without necessarily being as invested uh, in Naomi herself. So I, I think it's about her, obviously very clear that the title is Naomi Osaka and she's on the cover and it's all about her. But at the same time, I think it is bigger than that. So I hope people can give it a chance through that that lens. Do you think other players would enjoy reading this book? Uh, maybe, yeah, there's, there's a couple players who have actually sent it to already. I haven't heard any of them reading, reading it yet, um, but I think so, I, I would think so. I think the other thing too is with Naomi, and this is something uh, that actually she said in Brisbane last week. You know, Naomi's an enigma to a lot of the players on tour. And one of the things I could have had a lot more, one of the things I don't have a ton of, which I could have had more of in the sport, in the book, but because a lot of them said the same things was interesting, was when I talked to other players about Naomi, which I did a lot of in 2022, especially because Naomi wasn't playing very much. So I'd be at these tournaments with like not much to do if Naomi withdrew or lost early. And so I talked to a bunch of other players and, some players were reticent to talk about her. WTA players, especially, you might agree, like don't love talking about each other all the time. Mm. They're not as open to it as ATP players, I found, which is kind of interesting. But anyway, that a lot of them would say the same thing. It's like she's shy and she wears her headphones, so we can't talk to her. Like she's just not very approachable and she's sort mm. of walled off. But they think positively of her, but it's also like at a distance. Generally, it's the thing with Naomi for almost everybody on tour. I mean, Naomi did that even like, like Naomi would do that with us as well. Like we would have a proper laugh in a press conference. And the second we step outside, it's like none of this happened. Yeah, I said this in the book too, but it's like, she is, she's like the inverse, the typical. I'm glad you said that because like with so many players, right, they're on, they're kind of on, sort of on quote unquote in a press conference and they're sort of buttoned up whatever, and they sit down from the podium and the camera and the recorder switch off and they kind of like loosen up and exhale and like can joke and laugh and stuff. Mm. And Naomi is the complete opposite. Naomi, like something about the structure of the press conference makes her feel open and safe to share all these things and be so revealing. And then, but if you try to like crack a joke with her in the hallway 30 seconds later, it's often like awkward and doesn't work. Really, that's really unique to her. In a way, I wouldn't even want to put her in that position just because of how anxious she always says she gets when just someone stops her. Yeah, I've learned not to over yeah. time. Yeah, but certainly that's something yeah. I had to sort of learn with Naomi as I got to know her on tour. But so, but anyway, so I was saying she wears the headphones. It's something that people, other players mentioned repeatedly as a, as a block to getting to know her. And she, one of the things she said in Brisbane this week in one of her opening press conference answers, like, how are you feeling to be back? And she said, I haven't been wearing my headphones. I know. I loved reading that. She knows this is something that she has used. And she talks about in the book is using the headphones as 
a first line of defense of saying, don't talk to me. And sometimes there's not even anything playing in the headphones, honestly. And sometimes she even, when things were getting tougher for her in 2021 and 2022, she even started wearing the headphones to press conferences and just kind of moving them like off one mm-hmm. ear sometimes to sort of show that she had this partial visible shield up, even still to all this noise around her. Uh, but yeah, but coming into 2024, she's not wearing the headphones. So for a lot of players I talked to, they kind of expressed a desire to know her better. And so I am hoping that some of them will read the book or one of them reads them and reads the book and tells everyone else about it in the locker or something. I don't know, whatever it might be. But I will have some copies of the book of the Australian Open. I'm going to try to give to some some players and, and coaches and other people in the sport who I think would be interested. And a few I've already mailed it to, um, former players, usually recent former players um, who I'm friendly with, who I sent some advanced copies in the last month or so. But yeah, I, I do think that she remains not just a fascination within the sport as well. And yeah, lots of people... Not always on the record, because a lot of people have sort of strong feelings about her or complicated feelings about her and know what a what a lightning rod she can be. But people sort of, yeah, in the periphery of the sport were often very eager to talk or just very curious about this project. She's, she remains a, a subject of fascination both within and, and beyond the sport because of how, how layered and complex she is. So I just hope this book can can illuminate things for people on, from very close to her in the sport, in the locker room, or, or very distant. So is there anything... I didn't mention that you think would, would like you part, you found particularly interesting in the book. Uh, we met, we covered a lot here. I think you you hit all the pretty big notes. I mean, it's interesting just to sort of see to sort of step back from this book and sort of see bigger. I'm moving my hand, which is very useful in audio medium here. We don't even have our cameras on recording this, but the ups and downs and the sort of the rises and falls and, and peaks and valleys of Naomi's career, I think, are just a real reality for her. And I think we sometimes overlook that with a lot of great champions that they have these sort of times where things are up and down and people like obviously the, the current extreme like Djokovic in the last few years can make it seem like everything is always just win 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 all the time but really all of them do go through these these highs and lows and I do think Naomi's are more noted and more sort of extreme at times in various ways on court and off court and so I do think there is this sort of just yeah compelling propulsive path that she's had. I mean, it's not just, you know, I get one of the questions I got asked a few times is like, what other player would I want to write a book about next? And it's not obvious to me there is another player like Naomi who's had this journey mm-hmm. that she's had. You know, I, I think that this is, is a really, I wasn't like, I need to write a book about a tennis player. I'm like, pick one. It was more like Naomi to me was so uniquely compelling and had this unique journey that only got sort of richer as the reporting process went along with her life and, and everything happening. So yeah, so I think that I think that she was was definitely from from my opinion. People can read and disagree if they want, but I definitely think she was worth doing this project about, even if she is only you know just turned twenty six, which is crazy. That that she already has enough of in her life to fill this this kind of book and this project, and to make it, I think, really fulfilling for me to do, and hopefully to, for people to read. Um, it's a testament to this yeah remarkable life she's led. No, I I definitely agree. I, I always found her fascinating. I always felt that no matter how frequently I was talking to her, that I barely scratched the surface and I didn't know much. Mm-hmm. Um, as much as she, she, ha- she has been open in press conferences, the, there's also only so much you can learn from someone in that setting. You know, it's such a public setting as well. And it's a very yeah. moderated, you know, like you, you barely get a chance to ask a follow-up question and things like that. So... Right. No, I definitely enjoyed reading the book. You did a great job, Benjamin. I'm very proud of you. Thank uh, you. I'm very <laughs> happy you. we got to discuss it in detail. 
and I'm looking forward to receiving a hard copy. I pre-ordered it. Please, everybody, remember to pre-order it. No longer pre. Yeah, it's coming up very quickly exactly. now. And so thank you for that. And also just thank you, Reem, because I do owe a lot of the book to in the reporting because she does say these remarkable things in press conferences a lot. And you're right, sometimes they are isolated. But I had literally a binder printed out of every single one of her press conference transcripts. And shout out to the Wimbledon press room also for not minding me printing like 300 pages worth of transcripts there one day. <laughs> they looked the other way as I did that. So thank you to them. It was sort of going combing through those press conferences and finding the pearls within that was definitely rewarding because she can have these moments of remarkable honesty and, and revelation at various times intermittent throughout a press conference or throughout a season. And I owe that. She's someone who I think is really honestly in a lot of ways a testament to the sort of power of or the, the 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 promise or the whatever of journalism because I do think she has done I, maybe people think it's ironic with her one time standoff with the press but like I do think being in front of press conferences in front of reporters who are thoughtful and care like yourself like Courtney like other people I've named um, really can't bring out the best of her and really can make the world understand her in this in this way and so I owe a lot of the the insights in this book to reporters like yourself who who put in the time and the the travel and the the yards to yeah, reveal this story and to be there and asking the right questions in the right moments, the right places. So thank you to you as well for your help making this book uh, better. Your name is in it several times, as you know, and it could be in there more. I know Egyptian sports journalist, Rima Bulli. <laughs> I found that pretty funny every time I read. We did. I think that is one thing I did edit it in the, in the later version. I was like, we do call our Egyptian sports journalist, Rima Bulli, like five times. Exactly. <laughs> and I'm like, intro. at this Eventually, point, people know who she I'm, is by the I'm fifth okay. mention. And also, I'm okay with if, if you, you know, take one of my quotes or something. It's okay. Like, it's, you're allowed. <laughs> you already gave me credit. But thank you for being super thoughtful about that. <laughs> Yeah, no worries. I was happy to to show my work there a lot of times. Well, uh, thank you for chatting to me on NCR, Benjamin. Uh, I will let you, thank you sign us off from this. But I'm <laughs> I'm happy that I managed to sub in for once and do this. Yes, thank you. You were you were you were wonderful. Thank you for your help with this episode and obviously all your NCR help over over the years and and manning the the Middle East North Africa beat so uh, intrepidly. Uh, as a reporter. So thank you for that. Uh, I'm also looking forward to in a completely different newsbeat. I would just mention briefly before this Ans Shaper documentary. Ans is in the book a few times, could have been in it more also, but Ans is, is in it and and was one of the people who yes, it kind of opposite from Naomi on a personality extroversion level uh in the locker room and and seeing and how much Naomi adores Ans is it's very clear uh in this. But anyway, yes, thank you everyone for for listening and for for hopefully getting the book. I hope that this conversation made you more interested in the book. If you haven't already, if you've already gotten it, thank you. If you want to uh, get it now, please do. I'll have a link in the description of the episode where you can get it. And basically any sort of small, medium or big bookseller should have the book either available on stock in stock already or to, to order. So any local bookstore, if you have one you're friendly with, if you want to message me, I've done this for a couple people already. If like, they're like, I'm in Sacramento. Where can I buy the book? And I was like, I can Google independent bookstores in Sacramento and tell you where you can get the book. Um, so I'm happy to do that. <laughs> That's sort of bespoke recommendation for, for book orders if you want. And yeah, uh, just thank you everyone for getting it. I'm excited this is finally coming out into the world after a long gestation process. So looking forward to people reading it. And we'll, I, I would love to do like another episode of the show at some point for maybe like uh, reader slash listener questions about the book. Maybe we can do down the road uh, later in the coming month or so once people have gotten their, their copies and gone through it. Cause I'm sure there will be 
lots of questions from other readers as well. But Reem, thank you again for your questions. You were wonderful as expected. And my uh, pleasure. I look forward to seeing you somewhere soon. Thanks, Reem. Thank you. Bye.